And I had this incredibly novel experience, which was had so much meaning and connection, which we know meaningful connection is one of the more greater predictors of health and happiness in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here I was going into this looking for my comfort, looking for my rewards, and looking for other things. And so I think whenever we, whenever we focus toward others, and whenever we're willing to let go of our idea of how the world should be, how things should have went, what other people should have done, there's some new possibility that opens up. And especially if we're thinking, how can I be of service? And so then some whole new other dimension can come. Whereas the rest of the time, yeah, maybe I would have just looked for my same hotels that I stay in and my same experiences and my same whatever and sat at dinner with the same people who talk about the same things and we all agree with each other. You know, so anyway, it's a, I, it's just an example of one example in my life of where something totally divergent happened. It was a big disappointment. It was totally uncomfortable. And whenever I started thinking about others and whatever, I think I think that's a beautiful way to be courageous. And you're really stuck in something. Ask yourself, how can I be of service? Mm-hmm. I think it's a it's a very powerful tool to flip flip the script, so to speak. Uh, out of discomfort and 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 most of the time when we're unhappy or uncomfortable we have a lot of self-focus welcome to the courageous life a podcast founded on the idea that taking risks overcoming fears and moving beyond the limits of our comfort zones are prerequisites for living meaningful and fulfilling lives i'm your host joshua steinfeld and it's my mission to explore insights practical strategies and inspiring stories of everyday heroes that will empower more people to grow courage and awaken greatness. That was a small preview of what to expect from the episode with our guest today, Johan Berlin. Really excited to have him on the show. Uh, To give you some quick background, Johan primarily works in executive education and executive coaching for some of the top leaders and organizations throughout the world. In this conversation, I was lucky enough to be able to dive into some of Johan's wisdom and perspective about bigger questions like what makes a good leader? How can we have difficult conversations more effectively? How can I perform at my peak when things are on the line or I'm under pressure? We also discuss the importance of being able to let go and the courage that it can take to do so, both in our lives and in leadership. Really excited to say we cover a lot of ground in this episode, if you couldn't tell already. And along the way, Johan provides a number of practical strategies for putting these ideas into practice. So now that you have some of an idea of what's ahead, I want to offer you a bit more background about our guest. Johan Berlin is the CEO of Telex Institute North America. Telex, which is spelled T-L-E-X, stands for Transformational Leadership for Excellence, working alongside some of the biggest influencers and top leaders in the United States and throughout the world. Johan is committed to harnessing people's passions by strengthening the connection individuals, teams, and organizations have to themselves, to each other, and toward greater shared purpose. And I can honestly say after knowing Johan and spending some time with him that he really is somebody who walks the talk. And my hope is that you get a sense of that during our conversation. Johan's delivered talks and led workshops at places like TEDx London, GE Healthcare, the Stanford Center for Compassion, Microsoft, Shell, American Express, Amazon, the Wharton School of Business, and others. If you are inspired by Johan, as I've been, and would like to find out more about him or or follow more of his work, he does write on leadership and other subjects in places like Harvard Business Review, Business Insider, Thrive Global, as well as the Huffington Post. For resources and references that Johan and I may cover throughout this conversation, check out the show notes for the episode today, which can be found at www.joshuasteinfeldt.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's Joshua Steinfeldt, spelled S-T-E-I-N-F-E-L-D-T dot com 
forward slash podcast. And without any further ado, I give you our guest today. Please enjoy this conversation with Johan Berlin. So, Johan, welcome to the show. Well, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so excited to, to be with you again. Um, the, the way I usually start these podcasts is just by asking, um, was there some sort of challenge or adversity that you faced at any point uh, throughout early life or, or early adulthood that sort of set you on your path um, where you are today professionally and, and what you're doing? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think many many i the the first major challenge actually was whenever I was very young I almost died of uh of a disease whenever uh, a brain from an ear infection and um yeah I think that was a early childhood setback I also think it created some cognitive damage for me um maybe some learning disabilities stem from that and then um yeah there were a number of challenges also growing up um which were quite hard for me but I think I think one of the bigger things, if it, if I take that question in a professional context, it was overcoming my own incomplete narratives about what those challenges meant that was really the biggest hurdle for me. I think in life, uh, so many of the things that happen, the way we perceive them, the way we experience them is incomplete. And we sort of have our version of it <laughs> that we tell ourselves and, you know, uh, it's easy to kind of uh, make it, I was mentioning to you, like even with, with the learning deficit, it's easy to make excuses about why you can't do something. But is it always because of a learning deficit that you don't do well on a test? No, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, sometimes you didn't study or <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's lots of different reasons. But you sort of have your stories. You sort of have your narratives uh, of your challenges and your, your strengths and your weaknesses or why certain things happened. And so I think for me, um, that was a big one. And so learning disabilities was, was a big one for me. Uh, one in feeling that, that, that you are worthy, you are smart, you, you are capable, uh, whenever you have some early childhood setbacks in, in those respects. Um, and then the other is dropping that at a certain point and realizing, uh, you know, in this moment, life is what it is. And I think for me, there was a, I, I was mentioning to you, there was a test I was I was taking, and I used to get extra time on tests. I was I was going to City College, and I was working at a restaurant. I was I was in my you know my late teens, and uh, and I decided one day, you know what, I'm just not going to take the extra time for a test. I'm just going to go in and take it, and and from now on, I don't I don't want to ever mention to a teacher or on a project or anything like that that I have a learning disability. So. I did it and I finished the test early and I, I got an A on it and um, it, it was a major mental shift for me. So I think that was a big area for me is uh, dropping, dropping any of my reasoning, my rationale and, and, and looking at life anew, fresh in this moment. Like I can respond the best that I can respond. <laughs> so yeah, so I think for me that overcoming that was a, a big thing for me. You know, I, I just... Um... I don't know that this is like a, a perfect segue, but since we're talking about imperfection and imperfect narratives, I think it's good. So, so when before we got on here, we were talking a little bit about uh, the work you do in leadership, and one of the things that you've been sort of faced with recently is letting go of some responsibilities. And we were talking about a little bit about what does courage look like in leadership, and you said you know you're passionate about this idea about letting go. And so if I could make a, a little bit of a link here, it seems like you were able to let go in some ways of some of the labels or that sort of story or narrative or identity and then move forward part in part because of the letting go. So maybe we could use that and talk a little bit about um, not only the challenge of letting go in in the workplace and in leadership, but well, what is the importance of that and what might be the relationship of courage to to letting go. Yeah. Well, I think we I think we sort of have this American myth, right, which is that 
if you, if you want, we should all be superstars, right? We should have these perfectly curated LinkedIn pages and perfectly curated Facebook pages, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I may even be guilty of that to some degree. But th- this thing of uh, there's no room for vulnerability and also just crazy expectations for, for those of us who want to achieve things or for those people who want to achieve really big things in their life, which is you work harder, you be better, you be nonstop. And... Um, all of these things, to a large degree, we know aren't totally accurate <laughs> in terms of being our best selves, in terms of being full human beings. And um, yeah, and it takes courage to explore things. So I think it shows up in many ways for C-level people, especially for for uh, CEOs and founders in particular. I think it's very hard for them to let go. And and what they've learned is like it's the discipline, it's the commitment, it's the showing up at six a.m., it's the you know muscling through the hard times that has a, a part of why. And this goes back to those narratives why they are where they are, right? And it may be part of why they are where they are, but it may not be as well. So to build that reverse muscle, to build that muscle of like you've been building something for such a long time or you've wanted something so bad and to be able to put your 100% in and then let go it's very very challenging uh, i was i was mentioning there's a company a ceo that we're working with right now and he he's instilled three values at his company one is passion so really showing up and and doing your best and being all in uh the other is compassion you know, really taking time to empathize with the customers, with the channel partners, with your colleagues of of both uh, your work experience, their work experience, but also their human experience and seeking to understand. Right. And then the third is dispassion. So this ability of like, yes, I'll give my all. Yes, I want to understand other people. But also, can I just let go? Can I can I can I let go? And can I be OK with whatever happens? And I think there's something very beautiful that happens. I call it Project Deep Blue in, in, in my coaching, where it's like you're kind of out on the ocean, but there's something incredibly free with letting go. And if you're hanging on to prestige, if you're hanging on to these kind of perfect narratives, uh, one, they're not true, and there's not much learning in them. But two, they also can be incredibly suffocating. Right, because you're trying to maintain this perfectly constructed thing which doesn't exist. <laughs> and if, you, if 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 something contrary starts happening to that, then you feel you're losing control, or something contrary starts happening to your patterns of recognition or your familiarities or your comforts or your world. And you see this a lot in work right now. So workplaces are changing, uh, the reorganizations, digitalization. And in, for blue-collar folks, they've been changing for like a long time. And this, so we, as your world is changing, it's very hard to kind of accept it and flow with it. We're creatures, we're wired, you know, with the brain, safety first. Safety first and then rewards. And um, so it's our natural wiring to kind of hang on tight. And if you can build this thing of faith, of, of dispassion, whatever you want to call it, of being able to let go, uh, it's freeing. It's very complimentary, but I would argue it actually leads to better results. And in the end, you don't have control anyway. In your own experience as you're going through the process of letting go, has there been anything you've learned even so far that's helped you maybe move along or progress or strengths you've had to call on or courage you've had to call on or whatever it might be that's allowed you to move closer and be able to let go a little bit more? Uh, observation, uh, just being able to be present with it. So that's on a somatic level, that's on a mental level, it's on an emotional level. You could say it's a type of executive function, but this uh, so often whenever we perceive a threat, uh, our cues go into safety first, and, and then we're kind of constructing our narratives of what it means or or the person who threats presents the danger, why they're not good, and all of that sort of thing. And so that... To be able to have that observation, which is beyond your thoughts, beyond your feelings, beyond your physiological sensations, and to be present with them, um, it's very powerful. And I, I prefer that over trying to make me trying to make too much meaning of it, because the truth is we don't know like when those impressions were set for us uh, of, of that of of whatever we're perceiving that's making us feel uncomfortable or that we're losing control or. Uh, um, 
whatever threat it is that we're we're responding to real or perceived or true or not you know uh, yeah so i find if i sit with it if i observe it and i think uh, we both have this shared passion but meditation has helped me a lot in that mm-hmm. it's allowed me to cultivate that muscle of being present and letting go and just being very settled and calm um and of course things come up and then you sit with it and then and then the, if I do that, then I then I can respond and not react. So for those people that, because I love what you're saying, and I think I'm on the same, wa- same wavelength, but for those that are unfamiliar with the language, sit with it or be with it or notice or whatever it is, what does the practice actually look like, like in the moment for you, if you could just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so our, we basically have, there's, uh, this is going to be a very simplistic way of describing it, but we basically are either in at, at any given point in either what I'll call AM or FM. So AM we'll call a sympathetic state or what's called a stress response state. And FM we'll call what's called a vagal tone state, which is something that a lot of research is being done on. And so if we're in a sympathetic response, if we're in an AM space, um, then the way we perceive, the way we, the, the type of sensations we have, the way we react to things is going to be a certain way. And so our ability to sit with something, if we're in that space, is going to be very, very challenging because our whole system is saying like run safety, right? Like all of those types of things. So one of the really most simple ways to flip into that FM state, which is what vagal tone, which is where we're more open, we're more flexible, we're more relaxed, our, you know, um, is through the breath. Uh, if you, when you use the breath, it's the one you can literally flip And then if you can go into that calmer, more centered space, then we have more faculties to draw on Mm -hmm. to be sort of present. So I think if just the 101 of of being present (laughs) is that old anecdote, right? Like take a breath or take a few (laughs) or, you know, and uh, and long, deep, even inhale, exhale. And and then you can be in that space and then you can observe. But it's just like anything else. You have to build the muscle. And you build the muscle through habituation, through practice. And um, yeah, and I think one of the things that you can do is you can, often we know, sometimes we don't know when these challenging situations are coming, but often we know that they're coming, but we don't ever plan for it. And we, <laughs> right? We, and, and then we react like we're so surprised, like that this situation we, we're not comfortable with is coming. Um, so one of the things you can do before is you can really cultivate these muscles or you can do something just before like say you have a very challenging coworker that you work with or you're uh, somebody in your family is very challenging to deal with you can literally flip into this this space of you know this more vagal tone space before you meet with them mm-hmm. and have that calm and evenness and so you'll have more kind of presence and awareness going into those interactions mm-hmm. and then slowly if you cultivate these things if you build these muscles over time um, they're more predominant than not. You're actually surprised when you lose your cool or you're surprised when you're not able to observe and not react. And I get from that, from that uh, sort of downshifting or just changing our physiology, jumping into the parasympathetic sort of response and relaxing a little bit. You talked about being able to respond as, as opposed to react. And to me, that's about choice. Is that fair to say that you're able to choose your response? Yeah, so sometimes you don't always have the response you would want. Sure, <laughs> but with it, we're human. But, yeah, but you have more agency, yeah. and uh, it's not driving you as much as you know, the the situation isn't driving you as much as you are regulating within it, and then taking hopefully the best outcome you can perceive and step into. Yeah, that's great. And you know, there's a theme here that I wanted to sort of draw out, which is we're talking about letting go. And I think part of what you're talking about is this, um, you were talking about C-level executives and I'm thinking about, you know, like why letting go is so hard. And it's, it's kind of like allowing uncertainty to be present. Cause I feel like when we get in that, that place of uncertainty or discomfort, what we want to do is control it to bring some sort of degree of comfort and letting go is about sort of doing the act exact opposites, letting go of control. And I think about some of the broader implications of this and, um, and where I want to go with this, I've talked about this on previous podcasts a little bit. So bear with me for just a sec. 
There is a book that came out um, called The Upside of Your Dark Side by two psychologists, Robert Biswas-Steiner and Todd Cashton. And there's a chapter in there called The Rise of the Comfortable Class. And there's an association in our society that's sort of showing up, which is a positive relationship or correlation between comfort and happiness. The more comfortable I am, the happier I'm going to be, or comfort equates with happiness. And so I kind of relate this to taking that control because it's sort of a, it's a way to get at creating comfort or moving away from discomfort. And letting go is pretty naturally uncomfortable if we've been conditioned to, you know, kind of create a sense of control. Before we jumped on here, we were talking also about how this shows up in the broader context, which is sort of this manicured life I like to use, or this, you talked about the perfect LinkedIn profile or the perfect Facebook profile, or it's this sort of artificial rendering or (laughs) whatever it is of our lives. And I was reading some of your articles before we, before we came on and one really struck me and you talked about some of the dangers of this are we're living in this sort of increasingly homogenous life, um, which is it's comfortable. It's all sort of alike. Um, I get on Facebook, I can choose the things I like or some other, so I don't want to bad mouth Facebook, but whatever social media it is, I can select what I like, what's comfortable, the people that agree with me, that share my opinion. I don't have to look at things that don't make me uncomfortable. And what are the downsides of that? And, you know, so I want to get into a little bit of conversation because I think this is a place to talk about courage. And I think it's a really important place living in a society, at least in the United States, that's becoming increasingly polarized. And people... In my, this is just my opinion, but it's being harder to have difficult conversations with those who have a really different opinion. So I'd love to just throw this out there as sort of a topic of sort of the importance of letting go in a sense, but but moving into a place where we can be in sort of that discomfort for a higher purpose, which is to share the world and understand different perspectives, perhaps and have conversations with people that might see things very differently than we do. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that, because I know that's a topic you're passionate about. Sure, yeah. I, I would love to just get into the mechanics of this, because I think it's so fascinating what neuroscience you know, kind of tells us about our reward systems and our reward networks. And I, I, I actually would kind of take the premise, and or I subscribe to this idea that actually uh, comfort and desires are very linked like when are we comfortable? We're comfortable when our expectations are when we're satisfied, right? To a certain degree. So that could be a, a reward system from sugar, chocolate, coffee, uh, a good social interaction, whatever, whatever it is that that how we get those rewards, those neurological rewards, and then this major aversion to discomfort. And I think, I mean, one really sad way that this shows up is in is in the opioid epidemic in our country, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, this thing of uh, not wanting to feel and, and mask and and also many other types of addictions, but this this idea that we chase a desire and it's and it and it's fulfilling, um, it's really harmful. I think to us as a society, to us as a people, and I would actually say that contentment. It's very interesting in the in the in the more in a more occidental context. Um, who was it? June June Gerber. She was. I think she started the emotional intelligence lab at Yale or happiness lab at Yale and moved it to 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 UC um, UC Boulder. She she. I remember her telling me once that in an occidental context, we think of like happiness or kind of comfort and reward as sort of stimulation and sensory experience, and your sort of reward networks are going. And in a more oriental context, you can actually have very calm, even contentment. And I think these these different chemicals of the brain around what is a reward versus contentment. And desires are very interesting because a desire is only fulfilled for so long. And then what do you do? You chase the next desire. Mm-hmm. And when you ask, like, what what's happening with these different social medias and things, I think more and more we're chasing from desire to desire and reward to reward, whether it's a like or a comment or a text or, a, you know, whatever it is. Uh, an emoji. <laughs> what I don't know what's next, but <laughs> whatever's next too, and um, and we're literally being rewired. Mm-hmm. 
if you take what we know about neuroplasticity, if you take like um, patterns of recognition around these different reward systems and networks that we're building every time that we do these things, right? Every time that we're validated, and then at the same time, dissonance is so we resist dissonance or discomfort so much, right? And um, yeah, I think this ability to grow, to learn, to be free, to be flexible is where possibility is and, and divergent experience and things that are outside of the purview of how our life would normally be. And those are, you could argue, incredibly uh, rich. And rewarding. Actually, there's an experience that comes to mind in this moment when I was in India. Um, <laughs> so I was organizing for a big, you know that I, I, I have been a student of Shushu Ravi Shankar's for 20 years and Anyway, I was part- could you could you share a little bit about who he is? Yeah, so Sri Sri Ravi Shankar is a is a very um, well known spiritual leader and um, and also a, a peace ambassador. So he was he's been a part of reconciling se- several global conflicts, and then also working within conflicts. So like the FARC, he had there's a documentary called The Guru and the FARC, and the this most recent peace agreement that happened. He was actually the one that got them to take up Gandhian principles of nonviolence um, in, in doing that. But he's also been a spiritual teacher to millions uh, around the world and he's teaching a series of breath work. And a lot of what I do is inspired by him. Um, in fact, my, I would argue my criteria of success from more of a reward system thing to, to more of a service-driven mindset was, was very much inspired by, by Shushri or some call him Gurudev. But um, I forget where I forget where we were going before that. Oh, India, India. So yeah, so I we were organizing this big international festival uh, around harmony and diversity, and we wanted to get people. There were two million people that came, and we wanted to get uh, all these people from different countries. And uh, I don't know if you've ever visited India, but some, it is a beautiful country, and they're making huge strides. So I don't want to create the wrong stereotype, but at the same time. Uh, it it can be a little bit chaotic <laughs> as well. <laughs> and so I was thinking I'm going to have this wonderful spiritual, you know, sojourn and, and, and also I'll stay at these nice hotels. And it was a totally like Western superficial like idea of going to the, to the Orient and having these novel experiences mixed with some luxury hotel package. And, uh, and whenever I arrived, nothing was as I expected. And I was really frustrated, and you can imagine coordinating for two million people. It's like a, it's like an adaptive leadership challenge beyond compare, and everybody's coming different languages, different countries. And uh, I remember feeling super frustrated, and um, nothing was going to plan, and the my hotel was not what I thought it would be, and the food was not what I thought it would be. And then I just had this thought, like, go and do some service. So I went, uh, there's a big center in Bangalore. And so I just said, you know what? I, I'm just going to stop thinking about myself. I'm going to go into the kitchen. This is a massive kitchen. There's these huge pots cooking for, you know, the, the tens of thousands of people every night. And, uh, and I just took this commitment. Like, I'm not going to leave this kitchen until I feel better. Um, and so I went there. And at first there were some other Westerners in the kitchen uh, with me and, um, but I, I kept on I, I kept on going and by the end of the night I was one of the last people there. And it was basically me and a bunch of different Indians who had come in from different villages. And um and then as we were like sweeping the last water down the drain and everything <laughs> um um I started to walk out and one of the guys grabbed me and he said, No, come come with us. And so then we went outside and we were sitting, it was a beautiful night, there was tons of stars, and we were sitting in a circle, and, um, and right, as I was, right as I was walking out with him, somebody had this t-shirt on, it said, service is the key to happiness. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then I went outside, and I learned all of these people had been affected, they had, um, Sri Sri had created drug, uh, drug and alcohol-free villages, there was a lot of drug problems and alcohol problems in the, the villages around uh, where they were from. And these guys had taken trains for two days, two days, third class, fourth class trains, just to come and serve us because they were so grateful. 
and I thought, well, man, what a petty person I am. <laughs> like, on the one hand, on the one hand, and on the other hand, here I am. I'm sitting under the stars with them, singing some Sanskrit songs with them, which is, you know, what they like to do. And they wouldn't let me feed myself. They would br- brought me like a plate and everything. And I had this incredibly novel experience, which was had so much meaning and connection, which we know connection is probably one of the more meaningful meaningful connection is one of the more greater predictors of health and happiness in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here I was going into this looking for my comfort, looking for my rewards, and looking for other things. And so I think whenever we, whenever we focus toward others, and whenever we're willing to let go of our idea of how the world should be, how things should have went, what other people should have done, there's some new possibility that opens up. And especially if we're thinking, how can I be of service? And so then some whole new other dimension can come. Whereas the rest of the time, yeah, maybe I would have just looked for my same hotels that I stay in and my same experiences and my same whatever and sat at dinner with the same people who talk about the same things and we all agree with each other, you know? So anyway, it's it's just an example of one example in my life of where something totally divergent happened. It was a big disappointment. It was totally uncomfortable. And, um, and whenever I started thinking about others and whatever, I think, I think that's a beautiful way to be courageous is is if if you're really hung up on something and you're really stuck in something, ask yourself, how can I be of service? Mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a very powerful tool to flip, flip the script, so to speak. Uh, out of discomfort and 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 most of the time when we're unhappy or uncomfortable we have a lot of self-focus so i want to dive deeper into mindsets because i know you're passionate about mindsets in a, in a second but i also want to talk a little bit more about this when we are uh in situations where we're very uncomfortable like a tough conversation I kind of want to take this as an example because I, th- I think it's important, like if we're really looking at putting ourselves in, in these sorts of situations and being uncomfortable and getting out, outside of our comfort zone, talking to people that are very different than us, not in our normal routine, whatever it is, what are some things that either you've learned through your own experience of being a leader and of sitting down with people from different countries, different backgrounds, different you know, religions, et cetera, whatever it is about having conversations about tough topics or what have you learned, you know, so that's your own experience or what have you learned from people that you look up to like Sri Sri or like other people who are bringing so many people together and maybe talking about really hard issues like how to end violence in a certain region, right? How to establish peace. So what are some ways we can have these difficult conversations, either on a big stage or around a family dinner table? Yeah, it was, it's interesting. I think um, there's a beautiful article which I'd recommend people read. It's called um, "Listen More Than You," something like "Listen More Than You Talk When You're in a Conflict." <laughs> I think that's a safe rule. But it was by Emma and uh, one of my coworkers, actually Jennifer Stevenson, in, in Harvard Business Review. It's a it's a fantastic article. Sorry, I just want to say for people that don't know, Emma is Emma Seppala, right? Emma Emma Seppala, yeah, sorry, a mutual friend and uh, director at the Yale Center for uh, Emotional Intelligence and director of research at Stanford and just a fantastic, altruistic, caring, loving human Amazing being. Amazing human being. <laughs> Amazing human being. So anyway, her and Jennifer, one of my coworkers, Jennifer Stevenson, um, they wrote an article about listening more than you talk and challenging in HBR, and it's a it's a fantastic article. But I but I recall an experience I uh, where um, Shri Shri was actually meeting with some 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 gang members out of Baltimore, and um, one of the things that was really amazing is, of course, he has incredible wisdom to share, and that's why many people come to him. But in this particular context, um, he really just listened to everybody deep listening and there's something about presence and listening where the combination is very powerful mm-hmm. and uh, he has an incredible presence and 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 they felt so heard and in that moment so it's interesting of course he could have shared so many things um so just observing that it was quite amazing and and they somehow were like whole in that expression even if those narratives were 
I'm not saying they were, but even if they were limited or whatever from one limited purview, and uh, which as most of ours are, it di- somehow it didn't matter. There was a wholeness that rounded out when it was fully received. And I think so often whenever you're dealing with victims and culprits um, and this kind of back and forth in that, sometimes when you're just received, when somebody's just present with you, that's really what you wanted. And that's where letting go can happen. I would say the presence even more than the listening, in my experience. Yeah. And then there's, yeah, and then, I mean, different leaders are so different. I remember going into the uh, being part of a sustainable business summit during the Obama years and, and going there. And um, there was just a certain rhythm that his people had with him. You could feel they were, they were just very juicy to, to be working for him. And it was very principled and it felt very purpose driven for the, at least in these particular interactions. I don't know how it was on balance. I'm sure very stressful, <laughs> but, but yeah, just very principled, very balanced. And you could feel that they were just very inspired to work for him. And look, I think we all have different ways of showing up as leaders in, in that respect. And we all have different ways of being courageous because what terrifies us is different. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, just, um, but I also think this thing of not worrying about criticism mm. and not worrying about prestige. I think I've seen and a lot of the top, I mean, you know, you graduated from a great program and, uh, at UPenn and um, and just going around. And I never had a, a really, you know, illustrious academic career or anything like that. But I work with a lot of people who, who have and, um, and are at the, those institutions. And... Um, yeah, this thing of wanting perfection and wanting prestige and man, they're really, they can really be prisons for people. I remember teaching a course at one of the top five B schools, uh, or I was part of a, a program that was happening. And, uh, I remember this thing as we broke toward the end of a, a program and there was a lot of, um, they had been doing a lot of restorative techniques and a lot of observation, a lot of authentic social connection. And you you could feel it. You can feel it when that gets going. I, I think it's a lot of it is like vagal tone gets very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's Barbara Fredrickson talks about upward spiral. Yeah, yeah upward spiral is a positive emotion. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think you get that when you're doing the restorative and then you're doing the really authentic social connection. You get that kind of environment. And it's palpable. And I just remember them sharing, like, man, I, I think it was like eighty percent of the people in the room said I felt like a. If I'm being honest, I feel like an imposter here, <laughs> and so, and and that's crazy, right? Because you, everybody thinks that's where you want to be, and everybody puts on these facades, and that armor is incredibly lonely. It's incredibly lonely, and um, so this thing of prestige and wanting to protect it and wanting to avoid criticism. Criticism can be a very beautiful thing. I've had um, to work with some very incredible and very direct leaders in the past, and. It's been hard taking criticism from them at times, and 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 it's been hard to give it. Um, but there's some part of our, I think that, uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, our ego that becomes very stagnant, becomes very dense when you're not willing to listen to other people's feedback and criticism. And somehow when you are, even when it's an injustice and even when it's wrong, that ability to be with that and not react... Um, somehow that density is less or, or you're more fresh. You have less to protect. You're more free. Um, um, and then I think I, I was mentioning to you earlier, it's also tricky not to be overexposed in courage. And there are times where sometimes something's changing in our life or too many things are changing. And actually what we need is some inner stability. We need some consistency. We don't need to do anything extreme or or volatile and so i think there's a spectrum that people need to always take that into account so i want to pull because there was so much in there that i thought was so good and just sort of coming back to the criticism piece and also what you said about you know when people have very different opinions or you're addressing a really hard topic one of the things you've learned is the importance of presence and deep listening and I think about that, and I also think about, you know, if we're being criticized or our opinions being criticized or our beliefs being criticized. And you sort of tied in there a little bit of 
kind of that, again, that breathing or the activating the parasympathetic response so that we can respond as opposed to react. Because if somebody's criticizing me or my beliefs are being thrown under you know, the table or kicked around or whatever it is, or I disagree, I think it takes a lot of emotional regulation, breathe, whatever it is, to be able to sort of sit there and really listen yeah. and really be present yes. with somebody who's yeah. very different. So, yes. so in the moment, could you talk a little bit more about like if, if you and I are sitting and having a conversation about a tough topic and I say something that maybe pisses you off or you just really don't agree with it, but you're trying to practice this deep listening and understanding What's actually going on for you internally, like in the moment? Is there any anything you're doing or are you taking a breath or how are you able to be there in that moment when somebody might be criticizing you or whatever it might be? Yeah, so I'm, I'm on the end of the spectrum where I'm actually very good at expressing. <laughs> and it's harder for me to pause. So the muscle I've had to learn is like don't express it. Like um, even if I can express it skillfully with charge, like my thing is a lot of times actually my muscle that I really have to work on is just holding it and then waiting till that charge is gone and then coming back with it uh, later. Um, and uh, I, but I but I want to say something actually I, I want to just flip a slightly different direction and then I'll come back to that. I think one of the things when it comes to messy conversations and imperfection is just cre- allowing space for imperfection. Imperfection, how we respond. I mean, you you and I are trying to be, you know, sort of uh, more compassionate and altruistic men. And I think I think we're trying to hold that kind of tribe space. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, that's been a big journey, like, like uh, to, to even getting to where I am. Um, but this thing of, like, creating room for imperfection. Like, if we enter messy situations, they are by definition messy sometimes. <laughs> right? <laughs> And um, and just having space for that, mm-hmm. allowing space for that, allowing uh, imperfection in other people's expression, too. Mm-hmm. As we're trying to enter into these difficult conversations or into this discomfort, and uh, if we are truly exposing ourselves to new vulnerabilities and new situations and working at letting go of things um, because it's time or because it creates space for somebody else or whatever... Um, also knowing that that's an imperfect art and that's per it's, it's, and it's that it's an art. It's not like a perfect science. Mm-hmm. We're human beings. We, <laughs> we have these a- affective emotions and experiences. And, um, so I think that's a really important thing for people to keep in mind when, when dealing with courage mm-hmm. is not expecting it to be perfect. And then the other thing I would say that really helps me is doing it in bite-sized ways. So, like, if I try and be compassionate all the time, like, good luck. Like, (laughs) there's no chance, right? Like, somebody cuts me off. I have, like, a sympathetic response or a fight-flight response. And suddenly I'm in some old conditioning of, like, you know, giving the bird or whatever. Like, it's going to happen sometimes. Hopefully less and less for people as they kind of learn different muscles of self-regulation and and cultivate more human values in their life and, 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 and put value on less violent, more altruistic approaches. So much of our culture puts a huge value on, on violence and aggression and, and sort of, um, and that's how you get ahead and that's how you be successful. And, um, and yeah, maybe that's true to some degree, but we could also put value on other things. Nobody forced us to sort of do that. So, so my hope would be that you have those values, but then at the same time, don't put on this facade that like we're going to be perfect all the time. And so picking bite-sized ways of building those muscles, particularly if they're new for us, of like, okay, I know that like I have challenging conversation on this hour and this day. I'm going to do this self-care before or whatever it is, uh, whatever things could be breathing. It could be running for some people. It could be many. It could be just some other meaningful conversation that gives us some perspective outside of whatever that challenging situation is that's dominating our mind at that time and do those things in a in a really scaled way like by scaled i mean dialed back and i think that that's um that's the way that you habitually that's the way that you build muscles because the minute you say like okay i'm i'm, I'm gonna be you know 
more altruistic this year. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> and right, and then as soon as you're not, you're back. You're back into some default pattern. Yeah. Whereas if you can steadily cultivate, whether it's around the self-regulating, whether it's around deep listening, whether it's around um, empathizing, or more or, or more of a kind of external orientation. Uh, you can't hold that for all the time if it's not your default mode, but you can build it. You can build those soft skills. I think that's really valuable. You know, if you're going to go out and you want to climb Mount Everest metaphorically, yeah. you're not going to start with Mount Everest if you've never gone on a hike before, right? You're going to start with bite-sized pieces yes. and go through the training. It's a practice. It's imperfect. Yes. You're going to learn. You got to allow yourself to be a little bit vulnerable to fall, yeah. etc. Yeah. I'm sure you see that a lot in your coaching. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk a, a little bit about the work you're doing at Telex and with leaders. And I guess um, maybe you could just give us a little bit of background about what Telex does and um, some of the things that, you know, I, I'd really like to to focus on maybe some of the things you learned about what makes a really good leader. How do we and how do we cultivate maybe some of those qualities? Because there's so men, there's so much out there about leadership. There's so many books. There's so many opinions, you know. Sure. But you're working with some of the most high high profile companies in the world. You're work, you're working with tremendous influencers, and so I'm just curious about your own take on that. Yeah, I I always have the like, <laughs> I always like to, to have sort of the meta perspective. I I think situational leadership is so important. So Telex is transformational leadership for excellence, and I think uh, transformational in contrast to transactional kind of like, you know, the, the existing sort of motivation driven incentives that are so much of our economy is based on quite frankly, but so much of our reward and self-worth is based on too. I'm, I'm of this rank. I'm of this salary income. I have this job title, like whatever, all these things that have been external motivations. And I think we know the challenges. I mean, you know, from your, your program with, uh, at UPenn and, and I'm sure other work, uh, those uh, external motivators have serious limitations and uh, and and they need to continuously keep increasing right mm-hmm. so so you get a promotion how long are you happy right. <laughs> and then you get you get you know uh, the the perfect girl and then they're not perfect and then you know that's like I buy the car and then it loses its new car smell it loses its new car smell and then you you know somebody else got a Tesla and you're like man yeah, my, exactly. my old car you know um, so, so anyway, there's serious limitations to that. So then transformational leadership would be more that it's, it, that it's intrinsically driven. It's inspirational driven and that you can lead others dive with diverse perspectives and, and really lead, um, lead them, inspire them. And, and that, that there's also some fulfilling purpose in that, um, some agency, some ability to act and, 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 and it could be at a, at a formal level. But it could also be at a very informal level. You don't always need that that authority, and so that's a lot of what we're teaching. Is um, it's not about where you are, but it's about how you respond, and and who you can bring with you. And I love this definition of responsibility because it's it's uh, the 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 root meaning means literally the ability to respond. Respond to what? Respond to what's in this moment right now, and go and do it. And the qualities that I've seen in different leaders, it really depends because I almost feel like a situation defines a leader more than the actual leader. Yeah. Like Martin Luther King, as an example, he was a very reluctant leader in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he became uh, this massive persona who did incredible things. and uh, But in the beginning, I mean, this is well documented, he didn't want to host one of the early events. Yeah. And actually it was, I think it was a, a very influential person who ended up convincing him to do that and then obviously certain leaders came out so i think often going back to this responsibility thing it's that ability to respond in the moment and the need of the moment that often creates leaders like generals used to talk about that like are we just going to sit here at west point i think eisenhower am i just going to rot away here at west point or in kansas you know and never have my theater and and i think we would certainly hope that you don't have a theater but but that thing of sometimes the moment defines the, the, the man or Gandhi, for example, right? Gandhi was a lawyer and um, very much um, living in his own life within society. And then 
And then certain injustices happened, and he his life took a totally different course, mm-hmm. which ended up freeing or you know getting independence for you know one of the most populous countries in the world from one of the most powerful countries in the world without any basically violence or very little violence. Um, so I think I think it's interesting, uh, and it emerges. And I also think really great leaders learn from their mistakes. Going back just to stay on this sort of motif of imperfection. I think um, if you look at anybody who's trying to do something meaningful, um, there's often mistakes along the way. And a lot of times those mistakes have serious ramifications mm-hmm. and people even die or other things happen. You know, like think about people who are trying to send ships to the moon as one example. There have been explosions. Mm-hmm. There have been people who died or um, even in Africa, I, I was... I, w- I won't say the person's name, but they shared with me that um, one time they were bringing in machines. Babies were uh, dying of a respiratory problem, and uh, they were like, well, all we need is these machines, and hook the babies up, and then the power went out. Mm-hmm. And then, so the the babies were going to die anyway, but suddenly now it's on them. Mm-hmm. They were too irres- They were too hasty in something. Was their intention good? And I think, so I think going back to intention is a very important thing as a leader, because often we measure by outcome. And I think, um, and you should, obviously we're accountable to the outcomes of the choices we make to a certain degree, but intention is also very important, at least for self-reconciling when things don't go the way you wanted them to. And if you're doing something really challenging or vulnerable and you're having courage, Sometimes they don't land the way you want them to. Yeah. It takes courage because it's, it's probably not a sure thing, right? And so that thing of knowing your intention, that knowing sort of the seed impulse, was it for selfish reasons? Was it for notoriety? Was it to serve others? What, why you're doing something is very important. Because I think if you can stay within that, then you can self-correct very easily. And you can steer yourself from driving down roads that you shouldn't be driving down or leading down roads you shouldn't be leading on. And, and you see that. You see people who are very, a lot of people who are very successful who are doing it for the wrong reasons. And then it shows up mm-hmm. like later on. And, um, but I, yeah, I think leadership is so situational. Mm-hmm. It's really, um, it's more of a happening almost, I think. I don't really believe in, and there are so many different types of leadership. I think that's, if you look at different indigenous uh, groups or, or, or forms of leadership or tribes or um, different communities or different communities that have had incredible injustice or really poor social economic conditions, it's not always the billionaire on the private jet. Right. Sometimes it's like a, my wife did a lot of work in Haiti. And um, there's actually one article she wrote where, when the world's poorest people volunteer. And um, one of the programs she did is she asked people, like, what what really bothers you? She had them complain. And then and then she said, okay, well, you have a unique vision into this problem. And they said, well, we don't even have anything. How are we going to do this? She said, well, what can you do? What agency do you have? And then she had all these people who were, you know, marginally just above, like, extreme poverty. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, I can maybe mentor these kids on how to brush their teeth, or I can maybe do this thing or that thing. And suddenly you had this collective net effect start happening. And I think that's something that we need to turn to more in leadership is what does it look like when all of us go a little bit beyond ourselves and take that? Because it's much less sexy, but the collective net impact of the world we could live in, the communities we could live in, the 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 experience, the kindness that somebody could experience on a really rough day. Um, maybe this kind of harsh world would be a little bit kinder and nicer and more enjoyable. So, um, And I think the other thing about leadership, which has really been standing out for me, is that uh, if you're on the top, it's because other people put you there um, and, and keep you there. And so having that empathy down, and, and or I wouldn't even say down, just having that empathy of all the people who make your reality possible if you are in a leadership role um, is an important perspective to hold. There's, I'm just blown away because there's so much in there that's so rich. And there's a couple things I want to talk a little bit more about, and then we can kind of close up. 
Um, but I want to make a connection and just give a plug for your TED Talk there because I heard you say, you know, you talked about the idea in your TED Talk. You were talking about kindness and you said no act is too small. And just that idea that as a collective, if we're to go out, you know, there's those C-suite leaders who are going to change and organize a global or multinational company, sure, and going to affect a lot out there in the world. But to be a leader or to make a difference or whatever it is, that can also be at home or that can be, you know, with a coworker or that can be a very small act. And I really appreciate you talking about that. It doesn't have to be something giant. It can be very small. And those small things can really make a difference and add up. So that's one. The other thing you talked a lot about was sort of the situational nature of things and the importance of being able to respond to whatever the situation is. And something you've written about, which I wanted to talk about tonight a little bit, was one aspect of responding as a leader is performing at your best um, in terms of presenting or when everything is on the line or there's a project that's going on or if you're an athlete or whatever it might be, that uh, race, race day or whatever it is, and you get up there, whatever's going on, maybe you're giving a presentation, maybe you're meeting with that big client, maybe you're in the race, whatever it is, and you need to perform and you need to respond. And maybe you feel the nerves or maybe fear kicks in or maybe some doubts come up or whatever it is, um, how can we respond really well or effectively in those moments? Uh, yeah, I love this idea of this kind of theme of showing up in the moments that matter. And so one thing, I think I was mentioning to you, I'm going to do some riding on this, but one thing is I would say we should really question what does matter? <laughs> what what do we think those big moments are, right? So there's many approaches, obviously, to, to showing up, but I'll share a couple. One I learned from from Shushri actually, which is doing something incredibly mundane or small before something you put as important, like watering a plant or something, and just doing it with full joy and full simplicity, <laughs> and uh, or just being present with that person. And I, th- I think of this thing of putting so much meaning on stuff is it's incredible. It creates a uh, self fulfilling kind of problem, like. Uh, because it's so important, then we feel all this pressure. And um, yeah, what if every moment is important? Maybe what if it's just like a reorientation, a reframe? Like, what if every moment is precious and important? And and we put a value on that. And then yeah, we have to show up for these other things that are maybe less comfortable or more comfortable. But even just that reframe totally changes things. Be careful what you put a lot of attention and energy into. Because it's it grows and it becomes very palpable and real mm-hmm. for us, and um, and then knowing that we're wired, you know, like we're wired that rejection is connected with pain centers in our brain or similar regions, and um, knowing that those things are there, so we're going to be afraid of rejection if we're doing something in front of a lot of people or um, there are high stakes, and um, so understanding our own wiring towards safety first as a primary function of the brain and how it's evolved. and Yeah, and then the other is this thing of letting go. You could argue that letting go is the reverse muscle before you flex. So that ability to like really let go allows us, like how long can you hold your attention on something? Or how long can you hold your fist? Like only so long, right? And then you got to let it go. So if you have something important the next day and you're holding your fist or you're mentally tense or like you're physically tense or that's how you're showing up, um, can you really be crisp and focused in that moment? So sometimes it's about expanding out. Sometimes it's about letting go, being dispassionate, and then fully being passionate. So Federer, I'm a huge tennis fan. Federer run this 20th thing. If you watch Roger Federer hit the ball, he's so relaxed. He's so relaxed. It's wild, right? And you think about longevity and, and excellence. Wow. Um, so you could say that thing, the, this muscle of letting go, it's the reverse muscle. And many of us are so tense going into important things because we haven't learned that. And then the other is just dispassion. Like just really not being, there's a beautiful saying in Sanskrit, which is yogasta kurkarmani, uh, established in yoga, perform action. Was Yoga we think of like, you know, we're here in Santa Monica, like we think of like, you know, whatever beer yoga or hot yoga, or, but yoga 
in the literal the the more traditional definition means union union of mind body spirit and everything coming together at once and uh being consolidated and that and then performing an action so not just being in our head not just being so we have that somatic awareness we have that emotional expansion we have that f- physiological and that cognitive focus and so going into things very centered grounded building those muscles I think it creates a lot of dexterity in action. Uh, and you see that. You see some people just move with skill. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you could say they're a yogi or whatever. But um, I think there's a lot of different ways. But I think putting too much meaning on it is probably the biggest. If people want to start somewhere, be careful what you put too much meaning. And success or big fear of failure, it's an arbitrary line that you're putting on yourself of what you're capable of. And I think that's very dangerous, actually. We're capable, and this goes back to those divergent patterns. Mm-hmm. We're capable of things we don't know. Yeah. If we're asking ourselves, how can I respond? How can I be of service? Um, we could, we can be in any given moment in small orders of magnitude or big orders of magnitude, a transformational figure in somebody's life. And so just putting meaning in that and holding those mindsets of that that service orientation more more open to what's happening in front of us i think that's a great place to kind of close if you're good um i wanted to ask you just a little bit more off the cusp question which is we've talked about some different themes tonight we've talked about letting go we've talked about sort of mastery over our physiology in some way, turning on that parasympathetic response, relaxing so we're able to respond. We've talked about leadership, um, talked about difficult conversations. So a lot of different themes here. I'm curious about what are some books or documentaries or other resources that have inspired some of your thinking or just inspired you in general along any of these lines? Well, I'm a real nerd. So, <laughs> so I don't know if people would be so interested. In, uh, and I also like to learn about a lot of divergent subjects that maybe aren't so related to my life. There's a beautiful book called Celebrating Silence. It's just a, it's a series of kind of short short uh, stories or lessons and, and wisdom uh, by Shri And what I love is that you'll have one on wonder or one on surrender or one on silence and I think sometimes it's just like a simple understanding, like more like sutras, something light that you can just hold for a moment and then let it go and see how it shows up in that day are very beautiful. So often we want to like learn and read something and then we store it in our brain and then we we know it, right? It's some, But that's some static information which we may draw on or we may not, we may apply or we may not. So I really love what like kind of sutras and um, one book that really influenced me and this is this is Sanskrit. It's just a book called Bhakti Sutras and it's aphorisms of love. <laughs> I remember kind of growing up around you know a lot of toxic masculinity. That book really opened my eyes that there are so many different types of love. There's love of a mother. There's love of a brother. There's love of a, you know a, a friend and there's. Yeah, in this overly, hyperly sexualized, hyperly masculine kind of world, at least I grew up in, you know, playing football and being yeah, sure. being rowdy. Like, uh, that was a book that had a heavy influence on me. So it's not your typical business book, <laughs> <coughs> but just in terms of redefining my criteria of success mm-hmm. and also what it meant to be a sort of human human being and, and the the range and possibility within that as a man and as a young man in that time and in this day and age. And and I think that opened a lot of new experiences for me. Yeah, I think there's so many great books. Um, but on these topics, I think those are the two that have probably, and there was, it was interestingly, those are both more sutra-based books. So they're less about knowing and they're more about uh, encouraging wonder mm-hmm. and then seeing how those those things show up in your day or show up in interactions and and i feel like that becomes very dynamic knowledge mm-hmm. versus static knowledge 
right? That's awesome. And if, if people want to find out more about what you're doing at Telex or follow you or your writing, where can they learn more about what you're doing? So you can just follow on uh, LinkedIn would probably be one place where everything aggregates. But uh, Real Leaders, I do quite a bit of writing for Real Leaders and some for Business Insider and occasional HPR article. But um, uh, on the personal thoughts, I, I write more on Huff, Huffington Post. And then in terms of Telex, um, um, it would just be telexinstitute.com. And we have a fantastic team and international team. And um, it's really a privilege to work, to, to teach these type of things um, around, you know, the self-regulating and uh, greater uh, re- restoration and being able to let go. And, uh, and, and then what's amazing is that directly affects our ability to respond. <laughs> So uh, it's less about like new tricks and and even creating more social connection. I think one of the things that's really missing that I, that we see is this thing of uh, social isolation. You know, Emma Seppala talks a lot about that and our mutual friend. But um, when we can get into that vagal tone space, mm-hmm. our freedom, our courage, our our agency can be a lot better to uh, reach out and connect, which is we're wired to and. Um, yeah, so www.telexinstitute.com, and we have we have great faculty all over the world. And you know, it's interesting. Just kind of a final thought on tonight's conversation is you talk about the importance of connection and the danger of isolation. And I think about where do we connect? A lot of times, we connect through imperfection, or through challenge, or through being vulnerable. And not through the perfectly manicured life. So maybe there's room to be a little bit more imperfect and connect with one another. Yeah, that's a perfect bow for this conversation. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Johan. It's been a privilege. It's been, it's been really fun. I'm glad we did this. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Courageous Life. I'd like to extend special thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Matt Donner for all of the incredible behind-the-scenes work he does to make this show sound great. He's also responsible for composing the original music that you hear at the beginning and the end of every episode. Also, if you're enjoying the show and the conversation, please do share with friends, because I believe that courage is contagious. And while you're at it, if you happen to be on iTunes, make sure you click the subscribe button Or if you feel so compelled, leave a positive review. It encourages me to keep going and also helps others to find a valuable show amidst the many podcasts that are out there. Until next time, this is Joshua Steinfeld with The Courageous Life.